Welcome. This is Felipe Jimenez, Assistant Professor of Law and Philosophy at the University of Southern California, and this is the Private Law Podcast. Welcome to the first episode of the second season of the Private Law Podcast. My guest today is Courtney Cox, Associate Professor at Fordham University School of Law. Professor Cox writes at the intersection of intellectual property and legal philosophy, and today we will be discussing her paper, Confronting Normative Uncertainty. Hi, Courtney. Welcome to the show, and thanks so much for accepting my invitation. Hi, Felipe. It's it's great to be here. Um, I'm, I'm really honored and was thrilled when you said you wanted to talk about this. Yeah, it's a great paper. I really, uh, I really loved it, and I think it makes a really important contribution to uh, to legal theory. So I can't wait to see it published. So uh, I want to start the conversation with a really basic question: What do you mean by the problem of normative uncertainty? Yeah. So I guess stated at its most simple, maybe it's not so simple, but it's the problem of how to decide uh, what you ought to do when, despite knowing sort of all the relevant facts or theories, um, you remain uncertain about how to decide what it is that you ought to do. Um, would it be helpful if I contrasted it with sort of other kinds of uncertainty to start getting the flavor of it? Sure. Yeah. So I, I'm going to contrast it, and I'm also going to use an example that I think is maybe simpler than judging. So so take just sort of a normal moral agent, and we'll talk about uh, Kant's uh, infamous murderer at the door, right? Um, a murderer shows up and knocks on your door and asks uh, where your friend is because they want to kill them. Uh, and the question is really whether you should um, disclose the location of your, your friend to the murderer, whether you can lie or whether you can merely mislead. Um, Kant used this example for other purposes, uh, and I, I generally disagree with Kant, as I think does most of the universe, but I think it's sort of a helpful um, uh, fact pattern. So one reason you might be uncertain about uh, what you should do when, when the murderer comes knocking is because you have um, empirical or descriptive uncertainty, right? You you know the ethical rule. Um, you're certain that you you should not disclose the location of your friend, um, but you're also certain that you shouldn't lie unless it's absolutely necessary to save your friend. The problem is, is you don't know if this is a circumstance in which, uh, in which you need to lie in order to save your friend or if merely misleading the murderer at the door uh, will suffice. And so you don't know what to do, not because you're uncertain about sort of the decision rule, but because you're uncertain about what what the facts are in the world. This is this is empirical uncertainty. Uh, it's led to a whole body of research um, in philosophy about you know distinctions between objective and subjective oughts, whether or not the central ought is in some ways always agent or evidence relative. Um, really interesting questions, right? And we're used to kind of dealing with them in the law, but that's not really the focus here. Normative uncertainty is a little different. So you su suppose that you know the relevant facts, right? You know that both lying and misleading will save your friend. The problem is you're uncertain about the ethical rules. Um, on one view uh, that, that you might find reasonably plausible, uh, it doesn't exactly matter what kind of situation you're in. You can always um, lie to the murderer at the door, or you could you could merely mislead. And when I say could, I mean in the moral sense. It's, it would be moral either to, to lie to the murderer at the door or to merely mislead in these circumstances where you don't want to you don't want to disclose the location of your friend. Um, there's not really a, a morally significant difference between the method of deception that you're employing. On another view, right, um, 
it would be morally, it's always morally permissible to merely mislead, right, by providing some excuse or changing the topic. Um, but it's, it would be wrong to lie in the circumstance because you could merely mislead and it would be just as effective. So those are the two, the two ethical views. And, and you're sort of uncertain between them. I think, I think most of us that engage in moral theory, actually, if we're honest with ourselves, have a certain amount of uncertainty as to which is the right, uh, the right decision rule. Um, and so this is a kind of, of, of normative uncertainty in moral or ethical decision-making. And the question is sort of what should you do um, given that you're uncertain about, about how to decide what you ought to do? Um, this is both kinds of uncertainty can, can appear in, in the same fact pattern. You might be experiencing both empirical and normative uncertainty. Um, and those, those, those kinds of problems get really complicated, but this paper is really focused on this problem of normative uncertainty. Great. So just to sharpen this a bit more. So mm -hmm. how is this different from, so I'm going to, I'm going to ask you two things. So how is it different from the traditional questions that we group under the uh, notion of the theory of adjudication, like the normative theory of adjudication. How should judges decide disputes? How is this different from that question? Why doesn't this simply, why isn't this simply a more complicated version of that question? Mm -hmm. And the other, the other question is, is the do you think there's a connection between this and Dworkin's observations about disagreement in adjudication? So, so when he introduces part of his critique against positivism, he says it doesn't account for the fact that lawyers and judges disagree, even when they don't disagree about the underlying empirical and social facts. So is this related to that uh, phenomenon, if we think it exists, in legal reasoning? Yeah. So let me, let me take, uh, I guess, your question sort of one at a time. Um, so as to the first, right, how how different is this from just sort of the problem that appears in, in every case, right, about what the judge ought to do when they're when they're deciding the case? Uh, it it sort of sits on top of of those questions. Right. So we develop different normative theories of adjudication. And what I'm saying is, look, um, a judge may be uncertain about uh, which normative theory of adjudication is the one that they ought to follow. Um, it gets, I think the modeling of it in the judicial case sometimes gets a little more complicated than in, in the case of a, a merely moral agent, obviously judges are also moral agents, but in the case of a merely moral agent, um, sort of precisely because judges and lawyers were so used to dealing with what looks like normative uncertainty, uncertainty about the law, uncertainty about legal norms, uncertainty about when, um, certain kinds of factors that are maybe non non-legal or extra legal get into the decision making. And so I'm trying to in this paper, right, because I think that opens a whole can of worms and sort of trying to sidestep um, all of those debates precisely because I think they might be something about which our judge is uncertain. Uh, and so I've pushed all of those questions down into what I call the judge's jurisprudence. So that would include um, a, a normative theory of adjudication. It might include as relevant uh, views on kind of what the relevant, uh, what, you know, as relevant what the nature of law is or what the nature of a project is. Um, and so as to the connection between Dworkin's observation about uh, a disagreement, I think that's something I'm still, I'm still working out. Part of what I've 
what I've done in this paper is trying to separate sort of the two levels at which things are going on. And of course, there might be many, many more levels. Um, one is sort of purely juris, jurisprudential, and I, pure is maybe the wrong word here, jurisprudential in that it has to do with, with adjudication, what, what the judge should do when she sits down to decide a decision. Um, and the, the second order, I avoid this word in the paper because I'm trying to make it as accessible as possible, but the second order question when the judge sits down and is uncertain as between competing jurisprudences about how she ought to decide, if her aim is to do that which she ought jurisprudentially do, um, then my question is sort of, well, what rationally should should she do? And I, I think those two things answer to different criteria and, and there's going to be different um, considerations that come into play for for theories. I, I think because in some ways we've mushed these two levels in thinking about what a judge is doing, um, it it may turn out to be the case, and this is this is a subject of, of um, a couple of papers I'm I'm now working on. How to kind of appropriately categorize different different disputes and different theories? Are they theories about um, you know sort of first order jurisprudential theories, or are they? second order theories about what uh, a judge whose sole aim is to do what what the appropriate jurisprudential, you know, do what is ju- judicially right, as it were, um, how she ought to deal with the fact that she has credences in different different jurisprudences. I don't know if that answered your question, Felipe. <laughs> no, yeah, it, it, it does. Yeah. So, so, so if I think about the traditional way in which I think most legal scholars and legal theorists think about judicial decision-making, yeah. at least this is the way I, I would think about it, is at a very first basic level, we have like very clear rules and doctrines that we apply and that probably mm-hmm. 95% of the cases give us a clear answer, no matter what your interpretive commitments or jurisprudential views are, right? So, yeah, most cases uh, are actually easy cases. Right. It's most not- cases <laughs> are easy cases. They, they don't even need to be litigated because everyone, it's it's pretty obvious to everyone what the legal outcome should be for that case. Okay. Yeah. Then at a second level, you could say, well, maybe it's not as clear, mm-hmm. but we would have maybe a, a, an interpretive theory or a theory of adjudication that would tell us how to deal with these harder cases. And so, you know, originalism would be a way, would be kind of the, at, at that second order level, which is when you don't have a clear cut rule in the constitution you look at the uh, original public meaning or the original intent of that text and then uh common law constitutionalism as you say would give you a different decision mm-hmm. procedure and uh, leaving constitutionalism a different one and so on and so forth okay uh but then uh we could also it could also be the case that the question is not settled by those theories right so it could be yep. It could be that that they give you different outcomes. Mm-hmm. It could also be that they don't give you an outcome, and so then you would need like a third level theory, yeah. right? Which you could say, I would say, at that point you start hitting jurisprudence. I would assume, <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, like general jurisprudence. So what what makes law, right? Yeah, um, or what makes so, a legal proposition true in any given legal system? Yeah, and I think most people would stop there, right? Yeah, so. And so what I'm trying to do is, right, all, all sort of these three, right, this this decision process that you have described, right, um, all of that is what I'm pushing into what I call a jurisprudence. Right. And so when we see an easy case, 
um, that we all agree on. And I, I think this is, this is in some ways part of, part of the response, right? It's not that, um, we agree about the outcome. We agree about how it should come. And we may even agree about the reasons, but that's just because any sort of plausible originalist jurisprudence or any plausible common law constitutionalist jurisprudence, basically any of the jurisprudences that are sort of still on the table, um, agree about the outcome in that set of, of easy cases. They might have their own justifications or they might agree depending on what we think the scope of agreement is. Um, and then similarly sort of underpinning all of these are going to be the different theories of general jurisprudence. And so sort of what I'm imagining or part of how I'm, I'm trying to model this is that the, the spaces you've sort of got in maybe an infinite set of jurisprudence, so some of which are on the table, some of which are totally off the table and we can safely ignore. Um, and the idea is that in, in many cases, we might not see the problem because they all agree. Uh, but in cases of sort of increasing difficulty, right, where they start to come apart, that's where where we're now going to have different jurisprudences pointing in different directions. And, and I think if we're, if we're intellectually honest with ourselves, I don't really know that anyone um, has a fully, completely, totally worked out jurisprudence that would provide an answer in, in every case, um, including to the question of what do you do when, say, originalism or common law constitutionalism or sort of uh, textualism or purposivism or, you know, name your theory of choice is indeterminate in a particular case, right? Then there's usually theories about what else you can appeal to. Um, and so that's all of that, all of that I'm sort of pushing down and in, into the jurisprudential bucket. Um, and now I'm saying, look, you've got a, you've got a judge who I think rightly is uncertain, whether she's uncertain because she hasn't fully worked out her views or she hasn't fully explored and doesn't have enough information. She, she's still at the end of the day, got to make a decision. Um, and, you know, I'm assuming a really conscientious judge who wants to do what is the judicially proper thing to do, right. According to all those different levels of sort of uh, decision rules that are appropriate for judging that, that I've pushed down in these jurisprudences. Right. Um, what is what is she to do? What's the rational thing to do given her uncertainty? Right. So you you're saying that we can also have this agreement at this meta 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 level. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, I may have just opened us a huge can of worms, right? Because of yeah. course we we could be uncertain about um, what the what the rational thing to do is in this circumstance. And then there might be questions of, if I'm right, that, you know, we should be concerned with our uncertainty as between the different jurisprudential theories. And we should maybe also be concerned about our uncertainty as between the rational theories of decision-making, you know, is the best way to avoid this thicket. This is a Lockhart quote, right? So maybe the best way of avoiding this, this jungle is to avoid entering it in the first place. Right. Um, I, I think that's a little pessimistic when we haven't really tried yet. I, I agree. And, and so <laughs> let, let let me say what I think might be a re, a response that you might get, and you touch upon this on the paper. So the, yeah. as you as you know, the seemingly obvious solution to the problem would be that judges should just follow the jurisprudence that they think is correct, even if they're not a hundred percent sure that it yeah. is. Yeah. If correct. you're if you're ninety percent sure that textualism is right, then follow textualism plus whatever you know things you need to exactly. get the answer. So, so basically pretend as if you were 100% sure even though you're not. Why do you yep. think that apparent solution is not is a non-starter? Yeah, so it makes two mistakes. 
Um, so the first mistake, right, is that your evidence doesn't justify assuming that your favorite theory is correct. I mean, that, that's why you've got doubts. You've got credences in the other theories. Your evidence suggests that maybe your theory is not correct, but a different one is. Um, and I think maybe the, the bigger mistake that it makes is that it assumes that all theories say the same thing about cost of error, cost of error understood uh, in, in terms of judicial rightness. It's sort of about the badness of getting it wrong in a particular case, that, that it's same between all theories and that all theories kind of give the same cost of error in different cases, it, that it might actually um, vary. Uh and I, I think you can show this through a series of pretty simple examples, if you think that might be helpful to the audience. Sure, that would be helpful. Yeah. yeah. So so think of like a case, right? And when you have two jurisprudences, um, one one that says, uh, and I, I, I made these really highly stylized because in part my audience is not, not just... Uh, uh, legal scholars of particular stripes. I think this is a problem for everybody. Um, and so I also want it to be accessible um, uh, to students as well. Uh, so jurisprudence one is fit-based and jurisprudence two takes into account fit plus moral criteria. We can we can debate about whether or not this example will show jurisprudence one is just totally flawed. Um, but, but just for sake of argument, right? Uh, according to jurisprudence one, either option A or B are, are right. They're judicially permissible. Um, according to jurisprudence to uh, option A is judicially permissible, but uh, option B is wrong. It's verboten, right? Because it because of something about the moral criteria that jurisprudence two takes into account that jurisprudence one does not. Um, and so we can think about a judge who's deciding that case who thinks that jurisprudence one is most likely correct. Uh, According to my favorite theory, right, if he's supposed to act as though his preferred jurisprudence is the the correct one, and so he's 100% certain, then it then he can do either option A or B. That is, it would be rational, right, for him to do either A, a or B. Um, but the problem is, is uh, he's not actually certain that jurisprudence one is correct. Um, and there's an option on the table, namely option A, that will ensure that he does what is jurisprudentially correct in light of his his credences, right? And that's that's option A because jurisprudence one and jurisprudence two agree on those. Okay, um, so that that's one problem in my favorite theory, right? It, it, it seems to violate um, dominance. Another problem though, and I think this is the bigger problem, is if we consider um, a, a case, if we suppose that, that at least on these two jurisprudences, um, I, they admit of degrees, right? So there can be options that are more or less bad, um, and they they might disagree on the outcome. So jurisprudence one says that option A would be slightly wrong, um, and option B is is judicially the right thing to do. Um, but jurisprudence two says option A is right, and option B is extremely wrong. Uh, uh, my favorite theory fails to take this into account. It would say, you know, go with jurisprudence one you should do option A, um, even though depending on what, what your credences are, right? If it's, it's you know, 90% chance that you're, um, you're doing what is right by choosing option B, but there's a 10% chance that what you're doing is extremely, extremely wrong by some other theory. It seems like, you know, even if it's maybe not enough to tip the balance, a rational judge um, should at least be taking these into account. And so there, I have a kind of a, a bigger series of scenarios in, in the paper. It's, you know, a, a little 
harder to discuss them orally without without the visual that I think makes it easier to see. Um, but basically, the problem is my favorite theory says that even in a case like this, where your preferred jurisprudence um, says that there's only a very small cost of error with going with the wrong option. But the other one in which you place some credence says there's a huge cost of error um, with going going with the other way. You, you still got to stick with your favorite theory. You can't take into account um, that difference. I, I find that really, really implausible um, as a matter of rationality. If what your aim is, is to do, you know, what is what is jurisprudentially correct. Right. So so what what you're saying is basically there's a tension between, mm-hmm. between doing what is jurisprudentially correct and doing what's rational. And the the you know, the the, the person who wants to hunker down on the their jurisprudence are 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 basically being irrationally oblivious to the fact that they're not a hundred percent certain. Yeah, they're that, failing. They're they're not being. They may they may be in. I don't know if I would say that there's. Yes, and so in a case like this, there's a tension between what what you think is most likely jurisprudentially correct and what's the rational thing to do, given your aim of doing what is jurisprudentially the right thing to do. Yeah, that's that's an interesting way of putting it because when I was reading this paper, I, I noted that you constantly refer to the relationships between moral and legal mm-hmm. normative uncertainty, right? You start yeah. by motivating this problem from the perspective of what happens in everyday moral decision-making, and then you yeah. can try to see how this problem applies to the legal domain. Yeah. And you also distinguish, like you just did, between what the judge ought to do according to their favorite theory of their favorite jurisprudential theory mm-hmm. and what it would be rational for the judge to do. And in both cases, it seems to me that you make a fairly strong assumption that there is in fact a distinctive thing called law or jurisprudence or a legal yeah. way of making decisions that is different from just doing what is optimal, all things considered, or doing what is rational or even mm-hmm. doing what is morally correct. Uh, but as you know, uh, some legal theorists uh, who have been writing recently, people like Scott Hershevitz uh, and Louis Kornhauser, and to some degree, I would say Mark Greenberg, although with him I'm, I'm less sure, would dispute this assumption that there is this distinctive normative domain of law or this distinctively jurisprudential question about what the judge should do. They would just say the judge should do what they ought to do, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Full stop. No, no legal or jurisprudential yeah. uh, qualifier to that. So, why do you think they're wrong, or why do you think the assumption that you make is plausible? Uh, and also, I'd be interested in knowing whether you agree with my intuition that if they are right, if we should eliminate this idea of a distinctive legal domain, then the problem you're diagnosing diagnosing tends to disappear. Yeah. Okay. So there's, there's so much that's packed into that question. Yeah. I'm sorry um, about that. <laughs> no, it's, it's okay. Uh, so why don't I, why don't I start with a clarification first? Um, so, so the clarification, right, is even though I, I'm using a, a comparison between the problem as it arises for the merely moral actor, right? A, a ordinary person going about their business and a judge in the, in the peculiar situation of deciding the case. Um, it's sort of to give us, us grounding. I think the problem is easier to model for the merely moral agent. And I think there's extra concerns that come up when you're a judge deciding cases about scope of decision, whether or not um, it's, you know, I, I've assumed it to be the judicial opinion 
Um, that's just a simplifying assumption. It might actually be much broader. Maybe they should be deciding on the level of theories if we really care about consistency across cases from a judge. Um, you know, if you're an originalist, be an originalist and stay committed to it. And so your decision is actually point as much earlier. Or maybe maybe we take more of a pragmatic approach and, and think actually the right scope of decision is not the opinion, but particular rules or issues um, um, that come up. I mean, these are these are all complications for, for future work. And part of what I'm trying to do in this piece is, is get the problem on the table, right? You're not going to care about those complications if you don't care about the problem to begin with. Um, the second is I'm I'm sort of and maybe I, maybe it will turn out that I can't do this, but at least for now, I'm I'm trying to sidestep um, some of these debates about what is sort of distinctly um, a legal reason versus a moral reason, whether or not there is sort of a special domain uh, of of uh, of law. Um, by pushing all of that kind of thing into into what I'm calling a jurisprudence, right? So I, I think, and maybe I'm totally wrong about this. I'm still still digesting it all. Um, that I would think that Her- Hershowitz and Kornhauser would would agree, right? There's still this question about how a judge ought to decide a case, and and they have kind of a particular theory about what that looks like. They deny that their theory is is particularly somehow special or separate or independent from from maybe the moral domain but there's it's still a theory about what the judge should do and so then maybe maybe what it means is not that the problem goes away uh but that the problem of normative uncertainty in judicial decision making looks a lot like the problem of normative uncertainty in uh in decision making making by the merely moral agent and so what i'm what i'm wrong about is not that there's a problem here uh, but that uh, that there's there's going to be considerations that are unique to the judicial case that aren't present in the merely moral case. Right. So so I think you're right. So if they're right, mm-hmm. then your flavor of the problem just becomes the regular problem, which is already an interesting problem in and of itself. It's not like we've already yeah. solved that problem. Um, yeah. There yeah, is, I think that's right. There is one reason, though, why I I might be inclined to to sort of resist that. And so one of the, in in the paper, right, I, I talk about um, how there's this sort of concern about the incoherency of the question. Why doesn't it just collapse into the first order question of what ought you to do? Um, and and one of the, the reasons that um, I think that there's something to that sort of theoretical objection is uh, if we're talking about the same kinds of oughts, uh, it's going to lead to to an incoherence, right? So it's something like basically what's sort of driving the intuition that there is this problem is this idea that, uh, as as you've pointed out, maybe it's the case that you should do something other than what you think you ought to do. Ooh, that's kind of weird, right? So you think that it's definitely true that um, remanding for further proceedings is permissible. It's likely that reversing in favor of plaintiff is permissible. And now we just need a decision rule about what we should do when we're uncertain, right, about what the right thing is to do. Um, and then that should, coupled with sort of our, our beliefs, should give us a conclusion. Um, and if our decision rule is sort of do anything other than what your favorite theory suggests, we're going to run into a, uh, what would look like uh, a theoretical incoherence, right? Because then you would think, um, if, if you were to say to take a, a decision rule like caution, 
if you thought you should be cautious, right? And so you shouldn't choose an option that might be wrong if another option is definitely permissible. And so then it seems that you're committed to believing th three things. You're committed to believing that it's definitely true that remanding for further proceedings is permissible. You believe that it is likely that reversing in favor of of the plaintiff is permissible. You believe in your decision rule, right? It's definitely true that when you're uncertain about the right thing to do, you ought not choose an option that might be wrong if another option is definitely permissible. Um, and then as a result, you also believe that you ought remand for further proceedings and ought not reverse in favor of plaintiffs. So it's kind of got you believing that you, both that it's likely that you can do this thing and that also it's definitely true that you shouldn't do this thing. And that, that seems to be an incoherence. And the way out is to is to recognize that actually we're talking about two different oughts. One is what is permissible according to your to a jurisprudence, so what's judicially permissible. Um, and your decision rule is really about what's what's rational. So now we have two oughts on the table, a judicial ought and a rational ought. Um, that's sort of been the flavor through our conversation here. In the moral case, one of the big objections to making um, this kind of distinction, and, and this might argument is actually from um, Brian, Weather, Brian Weatherson, um, is that it sort of, it involves a kind of fetishism that you're not necessarily right responding in the right way to the good, you're fetishizing doing what is morally right. And so when you decide to go, uh, well, I guess in the before times, when you decide to go to the museum, uh, even though um, you think that a moral theory would permit you to do whatever gives you the highest pleasure. And what actually gives you the highest pleasure is watching, I, I don't know, Gossip Girl. Um, you, it's sort of like a, <laughs> go ahead. Sorry, I was just laughing about Gossip Girl. Oh yeah, it's a, a, a guilty pleasure. Sorry, maybe I shouldn't, I shouldn't be uh, uh, admitting to my love of Gossip Girl on, on a podcast <laughs> as esteemed as yours. Um, right, but when I, but the idea being that if, I, if I'm uncertain between moral theories and one of the moral theories distinguishes between higher and lower pleasures and Gossip Girl is a lower pleasure and the higher pleasure is going to the actual net. Um, and one that says, you know, just do whatever maximizes like your own, your own happiness. Um, but it, it could agree on, on sort of these, then if I'm going to the museum because of how this like calculus works out in the face of my normative uncertainty about which theory of the good and my response to it, you know, theory of the good and theory of the right is correct. Um, it seems like I'm not really going to the museum for the right reason. It seems a little perverse, right? I'm, I'm going to the museum because it's a rational thing to do given I'm certain about how the Met plays into my well-being, rather than, you know, going to the Met because it actually makes me feel better. Right. Um, it seems like I'm fetishizing, right, being being morally good. I'm not sure that the fetishism objection gets off the ground in the same way against a judge, because um, I, I don't know about you. I kind of I kind of want the judges to be aiming at what they ought judicially do. Right. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, and so given that being the case, it does seem to me that um, uh, you know, I want them to aim at doing what is judicially right. And if they are uncertain, then then it may be the case that um, there is there's this question about what they ought rationally do in light of in light of their uncertainty. And I'm not I'm not concerned that they're deciding the case for the wrong reason or not feeling the right impulses. Right. I'd, I'd actually be concerned about a judge that was too uh, sort of caught up in that rather than than sort of the the bigger question about trying to reach the judicially right outcome. Right. Judging shouldn't be a feel-good enterprise, right? Or at least uh, that's not the aim of judging. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, w one thing that uh, I mean, let me tell you about what I've been thinking 
uh, in our conversation. You can tell me what you think. I wonder if in law the problem is a bit more tractable than in the ordinary moral domain for the following reason. So Mm -hmm. the moral domain doesn't have canonical rules, right? Even if you're a rule utilitarian or something, you, you, you don't have any centralized system of having an actual closure mm-hmm. meta decision procedure but in law you could have right so so we we know all the we're familiar with all these principles like you know in cases of doubt in the criminal law you should decide in favor of the criminal defendant yeah uh, or that you should interpret provisions that give power to the state restrictively and provisions that give liberties to private citizens extensively there are all these kind of principles and meta principles so yeah do, do you think there's a sense in which law could actually resolve this problem relatively easily i mean at the extreme it could just say whenever the judge is uncertain about how to decide just flip a coin and so <laughs> heads heads you're an originalist tails you're a living constitutionalist i thought you were uh, going to throw it to the jury uh, right well i mean th- there are ways right in which yeah. law can give you a meta mm-hmm. ultimate decision procedure that uh uh, that morality, uh, you know, cannot give you. So, so maybe the the legal problem, I mean, the problem of normative uncertainty in the legal domain is more tractable. And I wonder to what extent we already solve this problem with certain practices that we see in adjudication. So I'm I'm so glad you asked this because I I feel like um, it it means that I've sold you on on the idea that there is a problem and it's one that we should think about and that perhaps like my favorite theory is not the way to go. I always um, agree. I always agree with my guests. Oh, you're too kind. Well, I've, I guess that's not very. Uh, thanks for that backhanded uh, there, Felipe. <laughs> um, uh, so, this is this is in part where my research agenda is heading next, um, right? So, I there's sort of two thoughts. One is is it is it in some ways more tractable because we've got. Uh, sort of enduring rules. I actually think that that makes in some ways the problem harder. So a merely moral agent that is facing this kind of uncertainty, they, you know, they, they make a decision and then they move on and they're not setting down a rule that others are going to be expected to follow, at least in the ordinary case, right? Um, maybe a political actor is making different ones, but sort of an ordinary, we don't normally think of when you're sitting down and, and making your decision about uh, whether to lie at the murder at the door, you're somehow making a decision that's going to be binding on all all future people in a similar situation, even if Kant thinks you should act like you are. Uh, in the judicial case, that's not, not true. And so to my mind, this raises a question about um, what the what the sort of implications are of of these decisions. I think it means like any decision is really harder to distill down to sort of a single, a single decision point. Everything is going to have, is going to be a course of action kind of decisions. And for, for reasons um, that I I don't get into in the paper, but that are are starting to be developed in in sort of the moral philosophy literature, those, those are actually in some ways harder. Um, So I, I actually think it's harder in the, in the, the jurisprudential case, but I, I share your intuition that, um, I think actually the lawyers really have something to offer here because we're so used to dealing with uncertainty and sort of basically every case that's making it, uh, that's being litigated, right? If there weren't uncertainty, we wouldn't be fighting. Um, And so there may be, it may be the case that some of these rules like that you're, you're identifying leniency or, or different kinds of deference um, kind of, 
principles of comedy or pragmatism, deciding on the the sort of smallest possible issue, um, uh, making it an unpublished decision, right? We're talking a lot about unpublished decisions lately. Uh, that these may be ways that sort of judges are trying to cope with their own normative uncertainty about jurisprudentially what they should do. And then, so then there's a question of sort of what level are different of these approaches? Is this, are these approaches questions of jurisprudence? Um, as like I sort of happily, blithely assumed throughout the paper, just for purposes of illustration, or are they actually um, uh, attempted solutions at the, the problem of what rationally you ought to do? Now, note that depending on how we categorize them uh, isn't, isn't insignificant, right? That's going to change the sort of the benchmark or the criteria by which we evaluate them. If there are questions, if there are approaches of jurisprudence, then then there sort of needs to answer to the norms or whatever of, of the legal system and all the various debates that I didn't want to get into. And there may be different views on what count as plausible jurisprudences or not. But if they're questions of rationality, right, if they're, they're sort of rational solutions to this particular problem, um, then that raises really big questions about A, A, how we evaluate them, right? We should be evaluating them by the lights of rationality, which we don't always do with um, with judicial opinions. I mean, I don't know if you've read anything in intellectual property recently, but sometimes those don't don't always conform, right? As, as I'm sure in, in contracts is the case too. And we're, right. we're comfortable with that, right? That's that's just a cost of having sort of an adjudicative system. Yeah. Um, but at the level of rationality, that's a problem. So that's, that's one thing, the benchmarks um, uh, for evaluating them is different. And I, I kind of go into that in the paper using the Google versus Oracle example. It, it shows how we can say uh, in one breath, the court in Google versus Oracle uh, went really wrong by applying a fair use standard and making this wishy-washy thing. And at another level, they were totally rational to do so. And given certain credences, I'm not sure had I been in their shoes, I would have decided differently. Okay, so that's that's one one thing. But then the other is it raises questions about the authority, but you know, the kind of precedential value. Um, of of these approaches, if they are sort of at the jurisprudential level, if they're sort of legal reasons, here legal being construed broadly to include whatever debates you want, and and this is where actually I may diving further into this work, I may no longer be able to avoid some of those general jurisprudence debates. Um, then it stands to reason that at least some of them are going to have certain kinds of authority. If it's at the rational level of what you're doing, you know, as a judge in your chambers when you're uncertain. It's not clear to me that those reasons, right, are binding in the same way. Um, and so that's that's a subject of a, a work in progress I'm working on right now. What, what what the implications of that are? It's it's head scratching. Okay, that that that's interesting, and this anticipates a question I wanted to argue, ask you about the yeah. implications of of the yeah. problem. But another kind of practical question is how pervasive you think the problem is in legal practice. Do you think it's only uh, you know, a marginal issue in very, very hard cases, or do you think it's much more common that it might appear at first sight? So I go back and forth on this. Um, I, at times I think that um, at least for experienced jurists who have more time, um, right? So I think it may be different at say the district court level than the appellate level than the Supreme Court level. Um, it's it's maybe less of a problem because the jurisprudences between which they're uncertain will often have a lot of agreement, right? We'd expect different versions of common law constitutionalism to agree on a larger swath of cases than if we were to compare common law constitutionalism with originalism. 
And so sort of the more thought out um, a judge's views about how to go about deciding cases, the less frequently this might turn up. Um, that's not to say that just because it's it's not pervasive or not present, right, that it's not super important because where you would expect it to turn up is precisely in the difficult cases where a lot is at stake, right? That's where it's going to have the biggest bite. Um, and and uh, there there may be few of those a year, but but they're pretty important. Right. In, in, in the paper, you're, you say you're in the business of identifying the problem, not yeah. offering a solution. Uh, but you do mention one example of a potential solution, which you call maxima maximizing expected judicial rightness, which is kind of a legal analog of expected utility theory. So can you tell us a bit about yeah. that solution for those who don't have uh, a background uh, that has made them familiar with expected utility theory? And what do you think are its virtues and why do you think it's still not sufficient as a solution? Yeah, and thank you, thank you for asking it that way. Because I'm gonna, I'm gonna put out the disclaimer again that I am not offering this as, <laughs> as what I think yeah, yeah. is the actual solution. And, and there's, in our rush for solutions, we often, we often miss that. Um, so it's basically like the hand formula, right? Everyone's, right. everyone's familiar with the hand formula. That's part of why I chose to use this as an example. Um, and it's, it's developed from, um, Ted Lockhart's views from, from about uh, a book he wrote about. Uh, in, I think, 2000. Um, so basically, the idea is that where a judge is uncertain of the degrees of judicial rightness of some alternative judicial acts under consideration, um, then a choice of action is rational if and only if the action's expected degree of judicial rightness is at least as great as that of any other alternative. Um, and we figure out what, what an action's expected degree of judicial rightness is by um, by basically multiplying, right, the probability that a given jurisprudence is correct, we take that to be our credence. So this is this is taking a particular view of what credences are. Um, that when I when I say that I have 20% credence in in originalism, it means I think 20% chance that originalism is true, and 80% credence in common law constitutionalism, 80% chance that common law constitutionalism is true. I multiply those by what that that theory says um, is the degrees of judicial rightness. So I've made some assumptions here that judicial rightness admits admits of degrees, specifically a cardinal ranking, and that I can compare them across theories. And and then I I do the math and I I do the thing that that seems to basically uh, minimize the cost of judicial error, right? By maximizing um, the the judicial rightness of, of by maximizing choosing the act which maximizes the judicial rightness um, by by running this out. I, The virtues of it, right? So, so one, and this is the reason I began with it, is I think it's familiar, at least as a heuristic, right? We all, I, I teach torts. We teach the, the hand formula. You know, the classic case is Carol Towing, um, but it appears much earlier, right? In T.J. Hooper, this case about whether or not um, uh, boat operators were, were expected to, to take the precaution of having a radio. And, and so what you're doing when you apply the hand formula is, is really just balancing the expected value of two options, right? Where your options are take the precaution or not, have the radio or not. Uh, and in the simple case, right, and this is where we get the hand formula, this is just comparing the cost of the precaution or the radio against the damage that could occur without it um, times the, the odds that the damage would happen. Uh, and the hand formula uses this as the standard of negligence, or I, I think more plausibly, at least as a as a proxy, right? If there's an inexpensive precaution that would cost you less than the expected damage of failing to take it, then you're negligent not to take the precaution. 
Um, and so this is this is taught in right the first year curriculum. I, I hope that it's it's at least familiar to the audience. Right. Uh, the the other virtues of it. Are, so it takes into account the credences. It takes into account your uncertainty as between theories in a very direct and clear way. Um, and it takes into account the cost of error in the same way that the hand formula does. Right. Right. So, um, so it's so basically it, it, it's basically sorry the yeah it, it it does exactly what the my favorite theory skeptic wants to avoid. Yeah, exactly. Sort of exactly. Um, so so then what are the shortcomings? Well, I, it's a species of expected utility theory, like the hand formula, and so that means it runs up against all the usual <laughs> objections that arise, right, vis-a-vis -vis expected utility theory, um, of which there are many. Um, for example, right, I've made a really strong assumption uh, that jurisprudences are complete. Right. And it and it that that in itself might not be a problem, right? Because because that can just be one way of modeling, right? We could have different complete jurisprudences. But there might be a question about whether there even could be complete jurisprudences that give us right a, a ranking for all possible cases. Um But there's a there's a problem that's peculiar to normative uncertainty, and this is the one that I, I address in the paper. And this is the problem of intertheoretic comparison. So the problem is, right, I, I assumed that, at least for purposes of, of showing you this kind of toy solution, that jurisprudences admit of degrees, that they, that they have cardinal rankings that we can talk about with more or less right or wrong actions, right? Um, not, all, not all jurisprudences follow that, right? Some of them are, need to be modeled differently, particularly sort of what you might think of as being more de deontic ones that give you clear rules or side constraints that have sort of like these lexical hard lines. Um, the other is that even if even if we did assume that all plausible jurisprudences sort of have a ranking that we like this that we could work with, um, they don't necessarily have the same range, right? So one one theory may have a smaller range and another might have a bigger one and recognize bigger bads and, and bigger goods. Um, and normalizing them creates all sorts of problems um, where those that jurisprudences that have bigger scales might seem to dominate in a way that maybe seems to be problematic. So these are these are problems that are not unique to the, the problem of normative uncertainty in judicial decision-making. They also appear in normative uncertainty in, in moral decision-making. And You know, some theorists think that they are so difficult that the problem just can't be solved. Um, I'm, I'm not quite ready to go there yet, <laughs> but um, it's one of the reasons that I'm, I, you know, I, I offer this as sort of an, an illustrative example of what a solution or alternative to my favorite theory might look like. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not yet convinced that that it is the right one. Okay, we're we're running out of time. This has oh. been great, but but I want to ask. One more thing, very short yeah. thing, mm -hmm. uh, and maybe I'm getting into your next paper, but if it's not, if maximizing expected legal correctness is not the right standard, yeah. do you have a sense of, <laughs> of what the right standard might be? Uh, no, I go, and I go back and forth on this. I mean, um, uh, Will McGaskill, uh, Uh, Christopher Bickfist and Toby Ord have developed a, a kind of board of voting. I, I'm not sure I'm, I'm convinced by that either. It, it may turn out that it depends on your credences and depends on the problem, which is actually the rational solution. So um, sorry, that, that's a long way of saying, no, Felipe, I'm sorry. I think there's actually other questions uh, in the judicial problem that we need to start grappling our, our heads around first. 
um, like what the appropriate modeling is, what the appropriate scope of decision is, so on and so forth, or at least at least in tandem with those those other kinds of questions. Excellent. Well, uh, Courtney, thank you so much for this really fascinating conversation. And uh, I really enjoyed reading this paper and I think it makes a great contribution to um, to legal theory. So thanks again for coming to the podcast. Thanks, Felipe. It's been so much fun to, to discuss it with you. Such a pleasure.